You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest is trained with the LAPD, FBI and the US Secret Service. He also has conducted behavioural interviews on 81 homicides and two serial killer investigations. The media refers to him as the human lie detector. Please welcome to the show, Steve Van Apparen. How are you, Steve? I'm good. Thanks, Anthony. Yourself? I'm very good. Thank you so much for coming on as a guest. I really appreciate it because I'm absolutely fascinated with your work. Yeah, I, I get a lot of people saying the same thing. They have this in, insatiable appetite for crime. And I guess people want to know, you know what makes you know, criminals tick and how to read people yeah. more than anything. Definitely. I mean, I know myself, I've been um, fascinated since a young age. I've even got my best friend, you probably know her, Denny Hines, and she also (laughs) is absolutely fascinated by it. We sit there watching this sort of stuff all the time. So, Steve, tell us, what did you, did you always want to do this line of work? Well, it was interesting because um, I I was in the police. I was a detective at the time. I spent 14 years uh, in South Australian Victoria Police. And I was always interested in psychological profiling, what made mm. serial killers and serial sex offenders tick. So what I did was I went to the FBI and back then they had uh, what they called the Behavioural Sciences Unit. Um, but the more I learned about profiling, the more interested I become in cognitive and behavioural interviewing. I wanted to know why some of the detectives I worked with were very good at reading other, uh, reading people and body language and others were terrible. So while I, I was uh, with the FBI, the more I learned about profiling, the more interested I become in uh, cognitive and behavioural interviewing. I wanted to know why some of the detectives that I worked with we're not very good at reading people and others were. Mm. So while I was there, they said, look, do you use uh, polygraph testing in your police department? I said, oh, not really. And it just started making me think, well, wouldn't it be great to have the skills to work out when people are lying to you by analysing content and structure of language, how people relay that information, whether they're taking ownership or creating distance, and then looking at micro expressions, distress signals, and so on. So I sort of fell into it by accident. Um, I, I do have a background in, in criminal justice, but um, I was just always fascinated by why people kill other people and what makes people do what they do. Yeah, I feel you there. I'm, I'm fascinated with it also. Now, I know you worked on the Azaria Chamberlain case. What was your role? Yeah, look, I was asked to conduct a polygraph test. Uh, it was from a current affair, if I remember. And there was a person who came forward who admitted that um, he um, was involved. Not Well, when, he, when I say involved, he said he was uh, actually shooting uh, um, uh, rabbits and, uh, at um, uh, Ayers Rock at the time. Mm. And he said that he saw a dingo with something in its mouth and he went up to have a look at it and he noticed it was a baby, he says, his story was that he went back to tell the others. And as it was, one of the four who was in the uh, National Park at the time uh, was wanted by the police on separate issues, nothing mm. to do with Zara's uh, disappearance or anything. Um, they had uh, firearms in the National Park. They weren't registered firearms. They didn't have licence for the firearms and all the rest of it. So there was a plan that was hatched to, um, to dispose of what they found and of course um he, i think he's passed away now but um they asked me to have a look at and interview that guy frank cole his right. name yeah that was a fascinating case i mean that really got australia talking didn't it <laughs> yeah it did yeah, now did. i believe there are three things you consider when studying a person what are they 
Well, what I, I, I do a lot of training. So I teach everyone from homicide investigators to intelligence agencies, police departments and corporations how to read people, how to read their customers and uh, how to analyse what they're saying. So I like to break it down into three areas. And ironically, since the uh, Bachelor in Paradise, I've had so many um, you know, single women say, look, you know, I go on dates and... Um, you know, I just can't read these guys. I just, you know, they, they say one thing that means something else. So what I do is I've categorised it into three categories, verbal, nonverbal, and paralinguistic. Mm. So what is, what is it? Well, verbal is we use words to deceive. So we need to listen very carefully to what people say and how they say it. And I'll give you some illustrations shortly. Second is nonverbal. That's body language. We need to look for conflict or contradiction between what a person is saying and what their body language is in fact stating. And there are, uh, uh, we see a lot of hand-to-face gestures in that, that area. Usually if somebody's saying something they, they don't believe or they know is untrue, subconsciously uh, the hand will go to the, towards the face in a uh, uh, self-conscious effort to block those false words coming out of our mouth mm. uh, because there are a lot of neural connections between our hands and our brain. Um, so with the body language, we need to baseline behaviours and then look for deviations from that normative behaviour. And I'll, I'll give you some examples of that later on as well. The third is the paralinguistic style. So what is that? That relates to tone, pitch, voice modulation, response latency, that's ums and ahs and so on, or unnecessary or superfluous fillers. So to give you a, an example, if I asked you what you did this morning, from the time you woke up until the time of this interview, neurologically, you would be relying on memory through historical uh, input mm-hmm. and sensory input to tell me what you saw, what you heard, what you did, what you felt, the conversations that took place and so on. So you're relying on memory through a historical perspective. Whereas if you're fabricating or embellishing or creating a false memory that never existed, for every lie you tell, you have to invent two or three to protect yourself from the first one. So not only do you have to have a great memory, you have to think, what have I said previously that's likely to contradict me now? Neurologically, truthful people don't go through that process because they can relate to you what happened to, to them front, back, back, front. So it, it, it's part of the process because they live through it. They're the three principal areas that you need to pay attention to. That's great. You know what? I would actually be a hopeless liar because I've got the worst memory. (laughs) I can barely remember to eat breakfast. (laughs) So do you think there's any, do you actually think there is anyone that can pass one of the tests falsely? Um, yeah, look, are we talking about polygraph testing? Yeah, yeah. In particular? Yeah. Yeah, Or or even with, with your skills themselves while you're watching them do the test. Yeah, look, Oh, there's two answers to that question. Let's talk about, say, polygraph to start with. Um, a polygraph is just an instrument that records physiological changes at a given point in time. The theory is if somebody consciously decides that they're going to lie to a question, they become fearful of being caught in that lie. Mm-hmm. And the body sends messages via their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So we see corresponding changes in heart rate, blood volume, blood pressure, changes in uh, emotional sweating, uh, changes in respiratory cycles and so on. So the theory is is not that uh, a person is caught out by the lie itself, but the fear of being caught in a lie. And that's what innovates and activates our fight or flight response. Now, uh, just in answer to that question, people, I, I believe people don't beat a polygraph, they beat the examiner conducting the test because either A, they don't ask the right question or 
Um, you know, the question's uh, uh, ambiguous in some way. I'll, I'll give you a great example. I was asked to work on a homicide and one of the detectives, basically, I won't go into all the detail, but the deceased was found in a, 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 a dam and uh, they sent me the pathologist's report and autopsy, uh, which he could not establish a cause of death. So one of the detectives said, Steve, we've got a number one suspect, our main person of interest. Can you ask him if he um, strangled the victim? And I said, well, that's, that's not a good question. Mm. And they said, why? Surely if he killed him, he would know how he killed him. I said, well, that may be the case, but let's just say he held him underwater and drowned him. And I asked him if he strangled him and he knows he held him underwater. And he says, no, technically he's not lying. Yeah. He'll pass that test. So another example, if I did a polygraph test on, say, uh, Monica, uh, sorry, Bill Clinton about whether or not he, she had a sexual relationship with uh, Bill Clinton and he said no, there's a very high probability he'd pass that test. Why? Because humans are very good at minimising, justifying and rationalising their behaviour. He could say to himself, well, technically, I didn't have a relationship. Mm. She performed a sexual act on me. Plus, I was married to Hillary at the time. That's not a relationship. So quite conceivably, he could pass that test. Yeah. So when, when it comes to behavioural analysis, which is what I do, so some police departments will get me in there and they'll say, look, uh, with, uh, or in some cases I do the interviews, but uh, before a polygraph test. So sometimes um, they'll say, can you have a look at this record of interview and tell us what you think? So effectively, um, firstly, I think the, the problem is, is people will misread the cues or signals, okay? Because sometimes people will make an assessment, oh, it's looking down, which could mean many things, but not necessarily lot, um, de deception. And usually when I, I talk on stage, I'll get people on stage and I'll, I'll ask them questions. And, um, well, I'll, I'll do it with you now. Let, let's uh, do it with you. So tell me, what was your very first job? I was pushing trolleys at uh, Franklin's in Brisbane. Okay. And, and what year did you start? Oh, God. 1980 okay. something. <laughs> okay, I'll stop you there, right there. What happened was when you were recalling information, you looked to your right to yeah. access that part of your brain responsible for, for memory. So if, say, for example, you're fabricating or embellishing, in your case, you might access the creative side of your brain and look in the opposite direction. But if you notice, I actually uh, stopped you before you finished that question. So loss of eye contact is not indicative of deception, but more so of neurological recall. And this is the problem I see a lot of investigators fall into, but also a lot of other people when they're, you know, they're misconstruing the, the message. I mean, you know, this, this is why we have emojis now, because sometimes people can send a joke, people are offended, mm. unless they put an emoji. I, I so honestly true. believe... We're, we're breeding a new generation. I mean, look around you. Everyone's got their, their heads buried in phones and, uh, uh, you know, on you know, all sorts of social media. That I think we're losing the ability to actually read people. Are you able to talk about the two serial killer cases that you worked on? Unfortunately, I can't because they're still being investigated. Ah. Um, I'm contracted to the Homicide Squad, so I can't talk about any cases that are still actually right, uh, under investigation. So, so unfortunately, no. Damn. <laughs> so with the serial killer stuff, I mean, this is the stuff that I'm really fascinated with because I, I, I first got into it when I was watching movies like Kill Bill and um, Silence of the Lambs and stuff like that. What would have been one of the cases that you would have loved to have worked on? Um, the 
Ivan Malat case. Um, yeah. I, I, I interviewed uh, his brother and um, also conducted a polygraph test on his brother for the Sunday night program on Channel 7. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, and I, I remember um, having dinner one night with uh, a woman by the name of Mary Ellen O'Toole, who used to be in charge of the FBI profiling unit. And one of her pet hates when interviewing a clinically diagnosed psychopath and by definition, a psychopath is one of the most misunderstood words in the English language. Um, people think a psychopath is somebody who goes out and kills other people. Well, I could guarantee you that at some stage in your life and a lot of your listeners' lives, they've worked with people who have psychopathic behaviours. A psychopath, by definition, is somebody who's recklessly indifferent to their physical, emotional harm they cause their victims. So they simply don't care. They have no remorse, no empathy. So to give an example, if you and I were applying for a position uh, and I wanted that position, I will do everything within my power to get that position. I will destroy you in the process. And don't worry about uh, trying to appeal to my sense of um, decency because... I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes to destroy you in the process to get that job. So Mary Ellen was saying to me, she said, one of her pet hates uh, with a lot of investigators when interviewing you know, uh, some of these clinically diagnosed uh, uh, psychopaths uh, who um, have uh, you know, killed many people is they'll say things like, if you don't want to help us, think of the pain and the suffering and the anguish the victims' families are going through. Well, the problem there is you're appealing to an emotion that simply doesn't exist. Um, you know, if you look at some of the most successful interviews, um, you know, they'll actually use a different approach. And uh, as an uh, interviewer, you know, I want all this information. So how would you do that? Well, in a number of interviews I've heard, they'll actually appeal to their egos. They'll say something like, how is it that you are so much smarter than we are? And Jeffrey Dahmer was a, a great example of that. You know, uh, all of a sudden, the whole uh, goalpost changed. And then he started telling investigators everything from, uh, you know, what he did with the bodies uh, post-mortem and, you know, where he put them and how he arranged them and, and, and so on. So I think to be uh, an effective interviewer and to establish, you know, the truth or, you know, the, 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 the accuracy of what they're saying is to understand what their motive may be. And, you know, like, I've always said, uh, you know, the best way to get somebody to do something is to make them want to do it. So it's all about understanding the, the psychology of behaviour. I mean, we know through research that if you blame a person for their behaviour, you make it substantially more difficult for them to confess to a crime. Yeah. So, and the top three reasons, by the way, why people confess to crime is one, they like the uh, interviewer, they feel comfortable with the interview, B, to get it off the chest, and C, that they believe uh, that the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them that further resistance is futile. So I think it's important to understand that, you know, um, I, I, and I know it's funny, you know, everyone's fascinated about, you know, homicide and serial I, I actually see the opposite side. I see the pain and the suffering and the anguish from victim families and so on. Mm. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, I remember, and I can't go into too much detail with this one, but I will talk about it generally. I remember I had to interview somebody who was in custody, uh, never to be released. Um, and, you know, he, he was a psychopath in every, every sense of the definition. I... He was like playing with me. Um, there was absolutely no doubt in this relation to this particular murder he was involved, but he was just, 
enjoying it. He was relishing the, the it was just incredible. Um, I went home and I, very rarely do I get headaches or anything, but that night I went home and I honestly, my head, I felt like I was going to explode. It was just, I, it was just such a tense situation. Um, but I will never forget that, uh, that interview. And uh, it's probably one of the hardest interviews I've ever done. If you like your beauty products to stand out, look a little different and smell amazing, then I'm pretty sure you should check out Sugar Monster. Brand new and completely Adelaide-based, Sugar Monster scrubs are natural body products with a quirky style to them. You'll have to see to know why. All completely handmade, vegan and cruelty-free with skin-loving ingredients that your body will love. Plus, they smell good enough to eat. But don't actually do that. Check out the range at sugarmonster.com.au and support local business. One of my next questions was, do working on any of these cases ever affect you personally? Yeah, I've, I've worked on 81 homicide cases and um, every now and again, you get a particular case that, um, you know, uh, really resonates or really uh, affects you. So um, one particular, I mean, there's several. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would dispute that any investigator somehow at some stage during the investigation doesn't get emotionally attached um, to the, the case. So... Uh, yeah, I don't mind admitting, uh, you know, I, I still have nightmares to this very day. Um, I, I'm a terrible sleeper. I wake up with, you know, I mean, and sometimes it'll be a particular thing that triggers. It might be the death of a, a child or murder of a child or, you know, something um, quite gruesome. So I think it's really important. And I've had some really good friends who uh, really had uh, bad cases, uh, post-traumatic stress. Um, to have an outlet. Mine's, you know, golf. I play a lot of golf and photography and stuff. But um, it's, you, you need, to, you know, it's, you know, I, uh, yeah, it does, to answer your question, it does affect me. And, uh, you know, to this day, and I, I remember the horrific case that I worked on where this uh, elderly lady was, um, you know, uh, bound and gagged and and then beaten to death. And, you know, she was, you know, in the late 70s. And um, she... Um, her husband found her. He he was also beaten, and the the motive was robbery. But I think it never ceases to amaze me what one human being will do to another. And yeah. just going back to America, I, I thought I'd seen everything in fourteen years of police work that one person could do to another until I went to the states. And yeah, I think anything you can think of uh, has probably been done. Um, yeah, yeah. At, at sometimes, but then you, on the other side of that, sometimes something happens and it restores your faith in uh, humanity. And mm. um, I like to hold on to that side. Yeah, I think you'd have to. That's the one thing that fascinates me about America is that you see stories where people have been held captive for 17 years in a home and stuff like this. And you just think to yourself that I just don't even see that happening here because I th- are we just nosier? <laughs> I don't know, but I think we would notice it a little bit more that something strange was happening within a house next door I'm, I'm hoping that we would i suppose yeah look i, I share your, your your sentiments but the, the reality is is i've interviewed um um you know pedophiles who were married and their wives had no idea or their, their partners had no idea um so sometimes you know the, the, i mean sometimes there may be signs there but we uh, either in denial or sometimes people have this attitude i don't want to be involved um Look, you know, by and large, you know, 99%, 99.9% of the population uh, do the right thing. And, uh, I mean, 
we've got to be careful not to um, get to a stage where, you know, um, and we know that fear is one of the biggest emotional drivers of behaviour that, yeah. that, that creates uh, angst in, in people. But I think that, um, yes, there, there are some bad people in the population, but um, I, I, I believe often it's only a matter of time that they're going to trip up. Um, and, you know, look, you know, cold cases are the hardest cases to solve, especially mm. if they're serial killer uh, cases, because... Most homicides, you know, in the ninety mid ninety percentile, are domestic related, or the offender knows the victim, or vice versa. So you've got somewhere to work from and to. So you start from the family and work your way out. Mm. Whereas um, you know, uh, serial killers who randomly choose their um, their victims are very difficult because there's not that nexus or connection. So it's quite a drop. And I remember working on one um, serial killer case. And his victims ranged in age from um, a seventeen-year-old to um, around about seventy-six, which is very unusual. Yeah. Very unusual. Um, so yeah, and you know, I think it, it comes back to. I was interviewed the other day, and um, somebody was asking me what my view of profiling was. And uh, I, look, I, I think it's a, another tool in the investigative arm. I, having said that, though, I think. Sometimes it gives not just investigators, but the public tunnel vision as well. I remember the Claremont serial killer investigation in Perth. They had a, um, uh, a profile done and, um, and part of it said the person you're looking for is fastidious. Well, I'll put to you, if you're a serial killer transporting victims in, say, the back of your car, on the boot of your car, you'd be fastidious about cleaning out any biological trace evidence that could link you to the crime. So... Um, I, look, I, 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 a lot of investigators or homicide investigators will go to a, a scene um, and a lot of the time you can tell a lot just by the, the scene itself, you know, whether or not the offender spent time with the victim post-mortem, is the scene staged, has the, the, the victim or deceased been moved, um, blood spatter tells us a lot about blood emotion and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating area. Just going back to your original question, I sort mm. of... I was always interested in that side, uh, well before you know, um, Silence of the Lambs become um, you know, pro- you know, popular viewing. But um, I think the other side too is you know, uh, resolution. It's, it's sort of you know, getting in there and helping solve those crimes. Yeah, no, definitely. Do you believe criminals are born or created? Yeah, good question. I, I think it's a combination. Um, I think in some cases we are uh, a product of our environment. If you've been brought up in a household uh, where, say, dad comes home and is physically violent with mum and, um, you know, you go through... I'm not saying you know, everyone goes through the same process, but, you know, <clears throat> you don't know what's normal. You're brought up in an environment. Is that normal or not normal? Um, and same like if you, you know, uh, with... Uh, sex offenders who uh, offend against children. So you've got a situation where um, they've been sexually abused and threatened. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you tell anyone, you'll get in trouble. So they, they carry this this guilt together with the um, uh, the guilt of being sexually abused and they don't know what to do. They don't know who to turn to. And when it comes to relationships, they have problems. And, you know, so I think to, to an extent, there is research that shows that head trauma um, and um, you know, uh, neurological damage can change behaviour. Um, so I, I think I believe it's a combination of uh, environmental and 
um, you know, those, uh, those other things. Yeah. 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 Now you're well known for your speaking engagements. What is your favorite piece of knowledge to pass over to other people? <laughs> it's probably more on the lighter side, to be honest, uh, than what we've been talking about. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm fascinated uh, when it comes to um, uh, human behaviour. Now, one of the things is men and women, the way we process information uh, very differently. And, uh, you know, we, what we know through science and research is women have more evaluation centres in their brain than men. So they're much more adept and better at lead, uh, sorry, reading body language. So here's the irony. If a woman is interested in a man, she will subconsciously um bombard him with behavioral cues that signify that interest but the problem is men have no idea <laughs> men have troubles picking up the cues or the signals many times and i'll talk about this um, uh, when i do my presentations many times i've been out in one particular case uh, a good friend of mine uh, says look uh, he says steve you're really good at working out if you know uh, people are, or girls are interested How, what sort of things do you look for i said well it could be anything from preening gestures, grooming gestures, good eye contact, frontal alignment, all that type of thing. So I said, you know, have a look around you. And, and you can usually see the dynamics in relationships. I mean, um, just recently uh, on uh, Bachelor in Paradise, uh, they asked me to just analyse the, the couples there. And, uh, of course, you could see some couples there who were really into each other. Mm. Uh, you don't need to be a body language expert to work that out. Um, I think... The real test is what people are like under pressure or stress. There are a couple of people there, in my view, that, um, you know, were going through the process rather than having real emotions. But the um, I'm, I'm fascinated with, um, you know, the courting process. And, you know, just more recently, I've had so many people contact me and say, look, you know, he said this or did that. I, you know, I don't know. It, it, does he mean that or whatever? So... It comes back to having the ability to, to read people. Like I said earlier, the FBI teach their agents to baseline a behaviour, then look for deviations from that normative behaviour. Now, if you haven't baselined a behaviour, how on earth are you going to see changes from that behaviour? Yeah. So the first thing you need to do is, is make a couple observations about the person. And then um, I want to know if the question is creating that change in behaviour or inducing anxiety. And if, as a result, that question is changing the behaviour and the person becomes evasive, omissive, dismissive, sidesteps the issue, doesn't answer the question, well, that's a red flag for me. Mm. So to give, you, <clears throat> excuse me, to give you a great example, um, questions, um, and, and I don't care how well prepared you are, you can't possibly pre-anticipate what question I'm likely to ask you. Mm. So let's just say you're a suspect uh, for a homicide. And the official time of death uh, is 7.15 p.m. last night. And I'm interviewing you about where you were. Well, I might ask you questions about where were you, uh, say, from, I don't know, 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. You might say, I went out. Then I'm going to ask you follow-up questions. Where did you go? I went to a restaurant. What was the name of the restaurant? Have you been there before? What time did you leave? How did you get there? Who did you go there with? Did you stop along the way? Uh, when you arrived at the restaurant, uh, what was uh, on the menu? What did you order? Describe the layout if you haven't been there before. Describe the waiter. Um, you know, how did you pay? What time did you leave? Now, all those questions create a lot of cognitive loading. We know when people are lying, it creates an intense amount of cognitive loading. Mm. So we need to look for changes in their paralinguistic style of delivery. 
I've always said you may be able to think of a lie, but can you effectively communicate that lie with believability and credibility? That's the issue. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this that's that's why I don't lie. It's just much, so much easier not to worry about that and to have the added stress. It's just why even bother? I don't know why people do it. Funny enough, when you did do um, Bachelor in Paradise, and I think you've also done The Bachelor before, it really did fascinate me about just the dynamics within relationships and how people are when questioned how they really go under pressure and it's obviously because they're not being honest you can almost see it physically in them the anxiety that's just all of a sudden rising up within them it's incredible to watch yeah no i agree now how does your work benefit businesses well typically um a business that's uh, in the sales process or negotiation process when they're working with customers or you know stakeholders they need to read uh, what uh, they're, they're thinking, feeling, saying and doing. So um, typically a lot of salespeople will go in there and their, their, their main approach or focus is making the sale, but not actually reading the customer. An example I like to use, um, an ex-partner of mine, she, um, a very successful businesswoman, and she rings me up one day and she says, Steve, I'm actually finally buying my Porsche. And she was quite excited about it. And she said, can you come in and um, we'll, um, we'll have a look. I said, all right. So she goes up to this salesman and the salesman starts talking, number one, about you know, all its, uh, its, all its uh, you know, features and all the rest of it. Now, when you look at the, the reason why men and women buy cars, they're very different. Okay? So all of a sudden, the first thing he does is approaches me. And I said, well, actually, um, Lynn is interested in buying a car. And he looked at her and he gave her the one side and then looked back to me. And then uh, right at that moment, I could tell that Lynn was really, really annoyed. So uh, a little bit later during the process, she said to me, she said, you know, I'm going to buy a car today, but not from him. <laughs> so he lost the commission on that sale based on the way that he, he treated him. So subconsciously we can do things that uh, upset or anger or offend people and we're not even cognizant of what we're doing. So I teach uh, you know, salespeople and managers, senior executives in how to read people during the negotiation process and how to ask the right questions and how to analyse their responses. To give an example, um, truthful people will often take ownership of what they they did or they saw whereas deceptive people will often create distance disassociation and separation in their language an example homicide case down here in melbourne there was a person by the name of john sharp and he reported his pregnant wife and daughter missing and um, they'd been missing for several uh, weeks and the media did a doorstop interview at the front of his house and the one of the uh, journalists who actually had undergone my training uh, asked the direct question. And the direct question was, were you involved in uh, the disappearance of your wife? And he said, you know, I'm really worried now because police are investigating the, the, what's happened. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. Your wife has gone missing under suspicious circumstances and you say you're worried about the police investigating. Why would that be? Why would you be worried? Yeah. In fact, it would be the opposite. You would, your expectation would be that police are investigating. Later on, he was charged with the murder. Um, wow. Pretty much like um, another case in Queensland. Um, I don't know if you remember um, uh, Jared Baden Clay. Yes, he reported his um, he reported his wife uh, missing, and um, what had happened was during the doorstop interview, he'd actually one of the journalists was talking to him. 
And he said, I'm really worried about my children. And right there, because I was talking to an investigator, I said, right there, told me he was involved. He goes, how do you know? We don't even know where where she is. Mm. And I said, well, think about it. He just said, I'm really worried about my children. What he didn't say is, I'm really worried about our our children. children. Mm. So why would he say that? So often pronouns are very, very important. To give you an example, when I see people excluding themselves out of the um, the um, uh, conversation, there's big red flags. If I said, where, where did you go this morning? You said, you wouldn't say walked down to the shop. You'd say, I walked down the shop. We know when people are being deceptive, they'll, act, uh, they'll, they'll exclude pronouns which denote uh, involvement. Or another one, um, Kaisha Abrams, I think her name is, yeah. young girl in Sydney who went missing. Um, her mother came out and did a uh, press conference and uh, she was there with the defector. And the de facto said, and, and at this stage they hadn't found Croatia's uh, body, um, and the de facto said, um, we really loved that girl. Uh, now, trust me, if you ever speak to a parent who's had their child abducted, they will never, ever uh, talk in singular person past tense. They'll always talk in present tense. Why? Because the anticipation or expectation is their child will be returned alive, safe and well. Why on earth, so soon after the disappearance, would you say loved? Yeah, Doesn't make definitely. sense. Oh, my God, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I seriously could. But listen, I just wanted to, before we go, Steve, could you let people know where they can find out more about you? Yeah, sure. Um, they can find out more at my website, which is stevevanapron.com, uh, Steve Van Apron. Um, and there's uh, a number of videos there on cases that I've worked mm-hmm. on that um, uh, take people through the process of what to look for and whatnot. But uh, stevevanapron.com will, uh, will find me, or even if you just Google Steve Van Apron. Uh, and that's V-A-N-A-P-E-R-E-N. And trust me, if you Google, you will find lots of videos. I've done it myself and watched most of them. <laughs> I really appreciate your time, Steve. Thank you so much. I find it absolutely fascinating. As I said, I could talk to you for days. It just fascinates me. But thank you so much for coming on as a guest. I'm sure the listeners are going to absolutely love listening to this. My pleasure, Anthony. Good to talk to you. Thank you. You too, Steve. Have a great day. Uh, Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.